Welcome to the Comics Asylum podcast, where we explore the world of comic books, movies, television, and pop culture. My name is Steve Bino, and this week, Crystal Skillman and Fred Van Lenti chat about their radio play podcast, King Kirby, adapted from their critically acclaimed off-Broadway play based on the life of legendary comic book artist, Jack Kirby. So I'd like to welcome to the Asylum, Crystal Skillman and Fred Van Lenti. Welcome. Pleasure to have you here both. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here, yes. All right, excellent. So before we even start, uh, how has 2021 been and has it been anything different than 2020? Ooh, what a great opening question. (laughs) Well, I mean, I know we're going to get into this, but like launching the podcast is something I've never done before. So that's been different, you know, coming and talking folks uh, like you on, on other podcasts and sort of doing all that has been quite an adventure. Uh, I definitely feel like I'm a professional comic book person. And at the beginning of 2020, as you may recall, everybody was freaked out about whether or not the comic book industry would actually survive. Right. But work really, okay, I'm a cat, sorry, I have a cat butt in my face and <laughs> certain aspects of it are really interfering with my ability to answer the question. You go over there. Oh, whew. Ah. <laughs> where was I? Oh yeah, 2021, up until five seconds ago, it was going great. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but you know, uh, but work has really picked up and actually 2020 has been pretty solid, I'd have to say. Here in New York City, we've gotten a lot of snow. In fact, today I think is the only, well, yesterday was, was finally we had the last snow. So we had this big blizzard on February 1st. And it's rare these days that we have snow a whole month. And that absolutely happened in February. So that was odd. Yeah, it was super snowed in and, um, yeah, and I've been, you know, uh, for for Crystal here, <laughs> um, it's been, um, you know, my, I have been transitioning to mediums for, and working in, in different mediums, like with writing for comics, and now starting for audio drama, I have a scripted series as well as the King Kirby, um, and I'm starting to pitch for TV, but that was, I've been, like, prepping for that for the past few years, so when the pandemic happened, it was just kind of like, like all of us, it was like a moment of, like, where are you at, like, what do you, what do you want? What are you going to do? So I've been really concentrating on that. But of course, I've been sad that, you know, I am um, and have started as a playwright and I'm the book writer of many musicals. Um, but for the most part, right, for writers, it's so different because we have to be ready. <laughs> we have to be ready when, when we come back. And so, um, and especially in musical theater, I'm the book writer of about four to five musicals in different stages. Wow. And I had no idea Uh, One of them is Bobby Cronin, who did the music for King Kirby. He's amazing. But I had no idea how much my schedule was based on the fact that they were available at different times. And so when the pandemic hit, it was like, oh, no, we're we're all available now and we want to work because, you know, we're trying to get through this. And I was like, wow, but I'm just one person. (laughs) So, uh, you know, we just have been creating. um, And then uh, to bring Bobby Cronin into this and working with us with King Kirby, it, it really has gotten us from 2020 to 2021. I feel now there is a bit of a difference because now we're really at the one year mark. Um, and in fact, I'm having a play read on Wednesday that I had a huge reading of in New York, um, uh, you know, just uh, this March 6th. It's, it's the last, going to that reading in Manhattan was the last social thing I did before the pandemic hit. Yeah, so I, I was kind of wow. lucky that I had these couple, and the, the, another one was um, uh, reading for these great producers who were working with us on Mary Max for my play reading on Zoe and they decided they wanted to option it. Uh, you know, and that happened that I, I remember we did that reading. It was privately. And now they're looking and talking to their, their UK component and designers and all this stuff, you know, this has kept on going, 
but um, that was a year ago today. And I remember after we read and I was so relieved it went well and, and, and we were all having a great creative conversation and someone got the notification on their phone and they said, Broadway's dark. And I'll just never forget. It. I just knew like it was, and we had yet to hear about people that were sick to that extent and these kinds of things that we learned later and, and some are not with us now, which is intense. But yeah, it was a year ago that this, our whole, our, everything changed. And the, the, the thing that I kind of, that kind of struck me going through this whole year and how it's affected people health-wise and, and um, psychologically is how, I guess we haven't really paid attention to the things that matter and then what we've taken for granted. And so I'm, I'm even thinking of, of the industries that we're in and, you know, comic books had its, I, I don't even know if it's fully out of it, but it had its kind of its, its turning point in terms of pencils down, the distributors changing, all these, all these kind of seismic shifts going on. But then you think of like live music and plays where you actually need an audience to have things go forward, how does that then impact not only the creative, but also the industry as a whole? It's huge. Um, with audio drama is so uh, different because, you know, um, well, first of all, I'm really proud with how people are really remarking on their experience with it as a listener and how they feel like they can get into Kirby's head in that world. So that's really exciting because, you know, um, I think it's cool that theater's using audio drama to share their work. Of course, I'm in that. But I we really thought about this as a series. And like, if it is an audio drama, how is it a, a, a series? How does that work? What is that experience? As opposed to taking a play and um, and making it a play experience. And that's why it's in four parts and it works really well that way, which I'm we're excited about. Um, however, um, you know, I we can tweet, we can get on the phone with someone. It's it's different, you know, and um, at the same time, this is a very, very bit nerdy, but you know, Facebook and Twitter have changed their algorithms um, uh, a little late, Twitter a little earlier, um, so that it's hard to share. So if you're an indie yeah. creator and you aren't, you know, uh, it's difficult. So, uh, so we are getting a lot of traction. We are getting a lot of listenership, which is fantastic. But what, what, what I'm so used to in theater is lights go up and for good or bad people, you see people. <laughs> and that is a, just a different um, experience. I, I've, you know, and, and my showing on Wednesday, for instance, with a theater, you know, I will get messages, I'll, I'll have a chat, people will probably call, people will call me after, but I won't have the experience of being in the room with them. And it's, it's, you know, that's a live, that's, there's something about the magic of live theater. And that's what it's about. It's the relationship between a live audience and live performers and a writer probably scared <laughs> about what's going to happen. <laughs> no, for sure. So before we go ahead, uh, can you tell our audience about King Kirby? Sure. Uh, King Kirby was a stage production here in New York about the life of Jack Kirby, co-creator of the Marvel Universe and Captain America and New Gods, the sole creator of New Gods, Dark Side, all your favorites, uh, and how and why he is lesser known today than maybe he should be. And we did it uh, here in New York a few years back, and um, it's been done. Uh, there's been productions in Canada and the United States. Um, we the original production was crowdfunded through Kickstarter, and so as a Kickstarter bonus, we actually recorded an audio version of reading essentially in Midtown Comics downtown here in the city um, as, a, as a Kickstarter reward. 
uh, last year, someone approached us about doing an audio version of the play and we realized, oh wait, we have this recording of the cast doing it. Crystal recruited her pal, Bobby Cronin, the aforementioned composer who did a great job sound editing and remastering and adding music to the production. Uh, but most of what you're hearing in the podcast is the original cast doing the show in a comic book store <laughs> in 2014. And, and I must admit, having it in Midtown, surrounded by a lot of Kirby's creations or the, the universes that he's helped to build or created on his own, must have been really satisfying. It was neat. I mean, Midtown approached us. They wanted to do it for their podcast and did. Um, it was really cool. And I read the scene directions, but when we did the, the audio drama version, I was like, well, let's cut me out. Let's like... Um, you know, make it as much as a radio play as we possibly could. And because the play moves around so much, I mean, it covers Kirby's life from the 30s to the 90s, him fighting in France, him, him you know, dealing with the romance comics and, and growing up in the Lower East Side and everything else. Um, it, it actually lent itself really well to this audio um, translation, which was fabulous. And what were some of the challenges adapting it from a stage play to a radio play? Well, in this case, we, we didn't know we were going to make into an odd drama series, but we're going from that original footage. It's kind of it's kind of that great indie story, which is like, save the film, save the footage, save the sound. So we, we have this great piece, and it was really a, <laughs> I mean, a pandemic project and yeah. how we decided to use it. I mean, I feel like the, answer, the correct answer is we hired someone else to deal with that problem. <laughs> <laughs> and our, our wonderfully talented friend, Bobby, who... Uh, you know, fortunately is, is a music teacher and, 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 you know, keeps himself busy, but admit, he admits was a little bored, you know, during the lockdown, really put us all into it and really did a fantastic job of adding the soundscape. I mean, and using music in really creative ways and sound effects in really creative ways. You know, there's, there are scenes set on spaceships and there's scenes set in the, in U.S. courthouses and, and you get into and, Kirby's and, head and, and, and ruined hotels in France where Kirby's yep. dealing with a German soldier he stumbles across. Right. But you all, it all really invokes really well. And that's really a testament to Bobby's skill. Yeah. And, and one he of the, wanted to, that he wanted to edit it was a surprise because we, you know, I called him up about composing. There's a beautiful, there's an amazing, like, uh, superhero like theme uh, to it. We wanted to yes. capture Kirby's feeling. It's very rousing. Um, and I just love it. Um, but we, when we were talking to him, then he was like, oh, who's editing it? And we were like really stressed. We were like, oh, we got to talk to editors. And he's like, I'll do it. And we're like, really? Yeah, awesome. <laughs> and the, the one of the things that I found kind of interesting is because it's set in the 30s when serials like radio serials were big, it kind of is a perfect marriage to the time, even the actor that is a uh, Kirby. Like, I feel like I'm like a little kid again, listening to those, to those serials. It's, it really is a nice. Yeah. Film. Yeah. My dad had records of the uh, Orson Welles doing the shadow, like those old shows in the early, early forties. And I guess the late thirties on a really those. And Stephen Rattazzi who plays Kirby is perhaps most famous to geek audiences as he's, he played uh, or, uh, Dr. Orpheus on the Venture Brothers. For right. Years. Good. So, great. Great show. Yeah. Yeah. He's a so very great. experienced voice actor. And, and again, he played Kirby on the stage. Not, none of us had any inkling that would go in this direction as a podcast. Right. Even when we recorded it as a podcast. <laughs> to say, but true. And so... Um, and the episodic nature of it, that was cool to discover too, that that worked. Yeah, for sure. Because like split into four, you have a four-issue miniseries when you kind of think of it. Right, sure. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And so 
what was the your biggest surprise um, delving into Kirby's past and then also his accomplishments? Well, um, I had been fascinated by it for years. A, a lot of this play came out of a biography I was working on and then abandoned. But I, I guess the strain with Kirby is always he had this kind of like he was weirdly sort of angry a lot and kind of this scrappy guy. He was literally a street gang member. Like he would get into street fights and, 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 you know, the, the Irish gangs would fight the, his Jewish gangs and stuff like that. Or it was really, I mean, we, we make it sound ethnic, but really it's just, they lived on another block. You know I mean? That was their big right. horrible transgression, right. That, that all these gangs were fighting over. Um, but yet at the same time, he very rarely, um, you know, when it came to Stan Lee kind of, being the public face of Marvel and and insinuating that he created all of it for the most part, and Kirby was just the craftsperson, the sidekick, if you will, trying to come up with it all. Kirby was was sort of weirdly passive until the very end there, and for decades, he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and 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 um, plowed forward. And I think that that's a lot of that. And so what I sort of discovered was. And it's something, I mean, we're talking about stuff that you, maybe you haven't heard yet because it's on the fourth episode. But uh, so sorry, spoilers, Steve. Spoilers. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you know, he, uh, I think it was in many ways, it, I mean, uh, you know, I was saying with this, you know, it's called King Kirby, right? Like all the great dramas like Shakespeare and, and, and the Greeks and everything else. It's like, we don't, we're not interested in victims, right? We, we're interested mm -hmm. in how people are the architects of their own destruction. And I think in Kirby's case, it was, it was, his ability to sort of walk away from Marvel and then do new gods and then walk away from that was always born of this sort of arrogance of genius because he always thought he could just create his way out of any problem. You know, right. he'd done the cap, he'd done Captain America, he'd done Boy Commandos, he'd done Young Romance, he'd done Fantastic Four and Thor. And he just figured that the the, the train would keep rolling, you know, and it, it probably didn't occur to him. He probably, and he just didn't know what to do with a guy like Stan who was extremely charismatic in a way that he wasn't. And um, really, you know, the minute I think Stan saw he had something going here with Marvel, kind of wrapped his arms around it and didn't let it go. And I don't think Kirby was, Kirby was sort of surprised by that. And much of that was fleshed out in the, in the, in the play. Um, uh, it was a bit different in that it had, uh, it showed uh, Kirby creating things on stage, but um, they were uh, illusions or, or it was a lure, it was making the comparison to actual Marvel characters. Um, so they, it added extra layers. So my, my, my take on it when I was just giving notes, <laughs> wasn't co-writing. Um, and then Fred was like, you're co-writing it, um, was to really um, ground it in following the work and, and staying with the people. And then through that, we are learning about the creations. And, and that way we could actually refer to the actual creations because we're not actually depicting them on stage which was evocative. Um, and then I think I, I learned a lot about Roz, which I just was really moved by. I found this little detail of, uh, that she used to ink um, and help. Kirby's wife. You know, Kirby's wife, uh, Roz Kirby, um, who's, who's an incredible character in person and um, human. And so, although I never met her, I heard these incredible stories. And so um, that dynamic, I was excited to, to explore with Fred. And then we really, you know, I brought to the table that we have to see this confrontation between Stan and Kirby. And so that's what drama is made of when something in real life didn't happen. It's actually the, it's actually, I think the sign that you should 
take something from real life and do it. What's the most boring is something else you could Google or discover. And okay, I'm seeing it played out in front of me. So when we came up with the, what you're about to hear in episode four, um, it, it took uh, some work, but it's just, I think it's one of my favorite scenes I've ever worked on. And I, it, was, it was really nicely 50-50, I think, between the two of us. And Absolutely. Um, so listen to episode four, because uh, you might uh, hear that, final, that what you're excited to hear between Stan and Kirby. Well, Andy, you know how it ends. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm going to, I have a question, but I'm going to flip to something that I remember listening to a long time ago. And it was a radio interview. And I don't know if both of you are familiar with this. But Stan was talking to somebody, and then Jack called in. Yes, and it was amazing. It's a yeah. great interview. If anyone can find it on YouTube or wherever it's it is, I suggest that they listen to it. But it was amazing how Stan had his interpretation how, how, right. of how things played out, and right. Jack's like, I don't think it went down that way. And he was very gentlemanly in his in his disagreeing with Stan. Right. And so you don't you can see how when you're mentioning that he just walked away because, you know, I can create something else that was kind of not the, the combative nature that he had maybe when he was younger. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'd ever thought about it this way and I was just sort of sitting here thinking about it. I think that fundamentally Jack just underestimated Stan. Like, I don't think Jay, I think it was tough for Jack to comprehend that people wouldn't see through Stan because to Jack Stan was just, was transparently a, you know, uh, a really upwardly mobile. There's a, there's this novel from the '60s or the '50s that he was references called "What What Makes Sammy Run." There's this character. Mm-hmm. I don't know about very much about it myself, but that's Kirby would always describe Stanley like this character, Sammy Glick, who's this very kind of like you know, um, you know, just kind of very charismatic, but kind of like you know, almost like kind of a used car salesman, right? Kind of stereotypical, kind of like, hey, how you doing? Oh, Steve-o, <laughs> great to see you, Steve man, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I will say that, you know, uh, doing this project and doing my comics at the Comic History of Comics, and just having worked at Marvel for so long and knowing so many people who knew Stan Lee, I mean, the most the people who most vociferously say Stan, who support Stan Lee, and kind of. Uh, either are very frustrated by Kirby's not going along with the company line or, or, you know, Kirby saying that he basically created the whole thing himself. You know, these are people all knew Stan and worked Stan, with Stan personally. And they're very, um, and this is across like age groups, right? Um, they're very, Stan really, I guess, had that charisma. I never met him myself, but he clearly had this charisma where people really saw him as kind of like a father figure. I'm also doing a book about the history of animation and Walt Disney had a very similar affect he had a very kind of like fatherly kind of like paternal kind of um, vibe. And, you know, that repelled a lot of people. I mean, Walt Disney made a lot of enemies. You know, Stan Lee drove away Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, Wally Woods, some of the greatest comics creators of all time. You know, Marvel could have had Orion and Darkseid along with Captain America and Thor and Iron Man if, you know, Stan and the American comic industry could learn how to share credit a little bit better. But yeah, I mean, Stan just, I just think, I just feel like Kirby really saw Stan as that punk kid playing his, his flute in the timely offices in, 40, in the 40s <laughs> here in, in episode two of our show. Yeah, that's pretty and, funny. Yeah, and I just think he just, that it's like that classic, you know, you never get a second chance to make your first impression. That was Kirby's first impression of Stan and he never really lost. I just think he just couldn't believe that, that this guy had put one over him. So, you know, uh, uh, firmly and completely. And, and Crystal, considering that Kirby already had a working relationship with Joe Simon 
and he was also kind of like, you know, my name first, your name first. And, you know, the whole thing about the suits, I don't want to give away too much. Right. Do you think that that also played a role as well as Stan being younger um, to how deferential he was or not as, you know, combative as he could have been? Yeah. Well, Fred's written about this with many creative um, uh, people. And we were talking about it with tech too, uh, with Steve Jobs and everything. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's, it is a pattern. It is a pattern where, you know, someone, you know, Kirby's clearly an artist who wanted to work and to make and imagine. And this, this kind of fight is not fun. This kind of, you know, trying to sell it, trying to, 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 to then uh, combat these things when you clearly think people will see through it. Um, you know, and you have a relationship with someone, but yeah, I think that, that, that these teams tend to work in this way. Um, and you saw, you, you know, you saw and heard and know like how much he, um, would draw and, and to do that, that takes an immense, he went, I think he preferred fantasy to reality. And I, mm -hmm. I think that, I think that's what I relate to. So a lot of my work uh, beyond this, and I think Fred's work too, and um, is, uh, is about that. I mean, I think we're, Fred and I are actually like that. Like we, we have to do this, some of this nuts and bolts stuff, but we certainly don't enjoy it. Um, and every time I meet a writer friend who loves doing that stuff, I'm like, oh, you love spreadsheets and you love getting ready for your pitches and you love, not that I don't love those things, but I would, there's, there's an act of creation where you get swept away. And that, that honestly is really the reason why, you know, I do it as an artist. Um, so, you know, it, it's nice to have somebody say, hey, I'll take care of that. Don't worry about that. But that does have repercussions further down the line. And I think there's a line in the play um, that's, you know, comics that were supposed to be temporary. You can completely understand this thing didn't exist before. And it's, you know, we're in this place where we're being listened to and people are reading and following these characters. I think the idea that they could become um, possibly, you know, uh, you know, uh, money that you could live on for the rest of your life. I, I think it was all beyond what Kirby could understand. Um, and that I think is why audiences that, um, are new to comic book history are fascinated by because they relate to Kirby right away. Cause they're like, that's like my dad. That's like me. That's like my sister. You know, we're all trying to figure out our budgets and to like do what we love and our passion yet put food on the table. And they've never seen that kind of story with someone who it's hard for them to imagine the, the, someone that could create the, the bigness of Captain America. Yeah. He's got to make money for his kids and his family. And so they're very moved by that story. And, and being artists, you'll connect to this, the way that, uh, I guess, episode one opens at the auction. And it's like that one piece of artwork probably was a decade's worth of his salary, right? Like when you factor in cost of living and everything going up, what it's selling for and the fame. Yeah. Well, you know. I mean, what, and what's funny is that, you know, those, that auction is a real auction I got out of the, the Kirby Collector magazine and, and those pieces that the auctioneer is talking about, uh, those were all like later than life reproductions, right? Like, so those weren't even the original originals and they were going for thousands of dollars. You can't even imagine, you know, if they were the indeed from the sixties, original originals, how much, how by factor 10, 20, 30 or whatever, how much money they'd be going for. I mean, staggering. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like the, um, it's a little bit different now, but especially uh, when you go back in the past, what 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 an artist gets, it's usually after they've passed on, right? right? So whether it's the fame 
or the cash, it seems to follow them into the, into the grave. But when they're actually working and the thing about Kirby was like, it was almost like his work ethic, talent, speed, all those things were like all superpowers. And he was able to put them together to like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to draw your universe for you. You need 30 pages. I'm going to grind out those 30 pages. Right. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't a case of like, oh, you know, stuff's lost in FedEx and yeah, I'll get that to you and books delayed. He was hitting his deadlines. Right. Yeah, you'd have in those days. You actually he lived in Long Island, and you did get on a train, you know, and go into New York City and hand live. You know, they wouldn't trust that that to the mails. You know, right? Uh, yeah, I mean the uh, this is un- totally unrelated to Kirby, but one of my favorite stories about the making of Watchmen was that uh, because there was no like FedEx, like Alan Moore would have to call a cab. And put the manuscript for the Lexus issue of Washington in the cab, <laughs> and the cab driver would drive to Dave Gibbons' house, and Dave Gibbons had to pay him, and then get the ma- get the manuscript, and that's how they sent the. That's an amazing you know, story. Back and that's forth. a great story. Yeah. That's amazing. There's a lot of faith there, to be honest with you. Right. Well, and taxi cab driver. I mean, I mean, I, I, an English an English cab driver probably had oh, no right. clue what he was. You yeah. Know, English, yeah in 1984 or whatever it was he was driving he's like all right this weird bearded guy is handing me you know this manuscript and gave me an address all right you know and pile of paper and getting back to the the you know kirby's home life to jack's home life you two being creators and are working on things and and Roz's um importance in his life the 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 thing that struck me was when he came back from the war her first her her first thing to say to him right yeah just make sure that your drawing hand isn't injured like i thought that was absolutely fantastic yeah right yeah it's definitely a case of reality being a good writer my dad loved that too like he texted me he's like i love that (laughs) and it just and considering all you know raising four kids together and then going through you know the war and hard times and the industry going up and down having that kind of support makes it a lot easier to then be creative as well too yeah i think so i think it's a it's a to have that's that's the greatest gift is someone who can see what you do and who sees you through what you can do in yourself and they really had that relationship um roz obviously was a force we reckoned with and i mean uh, just to do a plug, uh, Rob Salkowitz of Forbes, who was kind enough to do our, we have, we have a fifth episode actually coming after the fourth one, which is a round table between me and Crystal and the cast and and uh, Bobby. And Rob has a great, I'm not going to spoil it. It's a great Roz Kirby story that he met her at San Diego Comic-Con and you'll, mm-hmm. everyone who listens to this will get it's a kick out of it. It's a great story. It's awesome. Oh, I can't wait for it. Can't wait for it. It's, it's, it. <laughs> Uh, I was speaking to another artist about how comic books is kind of like the, the biggest undercover fame you can have, you know, like hundreds of thousands of people can know you and can follow your work. And yet they don't know what you look like. You can go to the supermarket and, and right. then by extension, what your family has to um, endure because of the long hours you know, sitting sure. at a at a table drawing or coming up with the ideas and plotting, um, it's 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 really a grind, and the faith in the industry as well as yourself has to be quite quite enormous for you to keep plugging away. Yeah, yeah, you really have to have understanding um, 
you know, I think with writers in general, you have to people that are understanding, like if you're in the zone, you have to leave someone in the zone and, and all that, but comics. Yeah. I, um, for writers, you know, for sure it's there, but I would say absolutely with Kirby and being an artist, uh, uh, you know, um, that the time at the drawing board is extenuous and mm-hmm. we, you know, with our friends today, like, you know what I mean? Like there, there's this mini comic. I always think of it, that, that, um, gosh, I wish I kept it. Um, but it was a as a comic book artist and you follow him from when he's very young and he's like gotta make comics gotta make comics he's just drawing comics and then and then and, and she's like you know his, his, his wife is like will you marry me she's like yeah yeah gotta make comics you have a kid like, daddy will you come out and play with me yeah yeah as soon as I finish this comic gotta make comics and then and then there's like a grave and it's like oh daddy had to make comics and then it follows that um aliens have bought his mini comic and they're like, this is so great. We can we can use these staples um, to 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 buy no, things you, for us. You, no, no, you have to Do say I the line. You have to say, it. have little, to say it's the it's line. It's these aliens come down and they find buried in his grave. <laughs> you let me say the line. The, yeah. these mini comics that were buried with the guy, and they're and they throw the comics away and they just have the metal staples. The metal staples. Because metal is valuable in the far this future. This is terrific. We can use this to buy pussy on Mars. <laughs> um, so uh, yes, I know that's crass that's a, for some viewers, but it's very uh, nice for brother and family there. We that's can hilarious. use staples to buy pussy on Mars. That's it's it. a big catchphrase in our household. But, you know, <laughs> it I, sums up the challenge up. of the creative well, person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That that's yeah. what your work will be hopefully known it's for. more than that but it's a it's a good laugh um, uh, i i love the days of just just reading mini comics we used to have so many or it's like in england like can you imagine how the like the the celts or the picks or whatever spent all that time raising all these like stonehenge like menhers and stuff these giant standing stones but then people would just drag them and put them in their houses like, fuck it i don't have any i don't want to like why should i go to the quarry like a jerk when i can they have these giant stones just sitting right here by my house let's oh, just get some ropes and, and drag them over that amazing new yorker cover we always think of gosh was that close like it, uh, who drew that the um a father and a daughter of it's adrian toma adrian toma yes um it's so gorgeous and he is walking with his daughter and he sees one of his books um or comics or illustrated it's a book it's a book and it's on the you know it's like that brooklyn thing where it's up against a gate like just take it for free take a book leave a book take a book is the shot is from like a basement apartment right and the the father and daughter just walking along the sidewalk and the daughter's getting all excited and pointing at a book on her side she's seeing the front cover right but because mm-hmm. we're on the other side of the bars we only see his grinning uh, <laughs> about the author cover and the actual dad is just pissed off that somebody left his book out on the street right so, yeah it's uh you know part part of being the uh, the artist right exactly. so yes. yes it's out it's out it has to come out it has to get out of you it has to be in a universe and then after that all bets are off. That's right. It's true. It belongs um, to something greater than you at that point. And it comes back to you. Most it... of the staples, though. <laughs> staples are what will matter in the future. If um, you're saddle stitched, you're shit out of luck. Yeah, then you're done. <laughs> totally done. So I want to I wanna kind of go back to the business of comics because you touched on it earlier that it's, it was a complete roller coaster, right? With the paper shortages, um, people wanting to change what was in the book, the comics code coming around. It, it, it almost seems as though it was a business with no business plan. And it was kind of like, hey, it's sunny today. We're going to do books about sun. And then it's cloudy tomorrow. We're going to do cloudy books. It was, it was amazing how on a dime they would, sure. they would switch. Yeah, particularly Marvel. Like we, 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 Marvel 
was absolutely sort of the hydrox to the rest of the complicated disease oreos uh <laughs> it was the cheap knockoff like if people were making western books they would do western books when the korean war right. started suddenly war comics were big so they started cranking a million war comics they were the biggest when simon and kirby invented romance comics timely aka marvel were the biggest publishers of romance comics in the country they just cranked them out like the butcher full um you know millie the model uh you know it, when archie was big so patsy i was i love this is patsy walker who those of you who watch jessica jones may recall uh, as a character in that show she was the archie ripoff patsy walker in the 50s was a ripoff of archie just with the genders reversed so patsy walker was uh, a redhead like Archie was, but and Al Jaffe of Mad Folden fame was one of the artists at Marvel at the time, and he said that Stan Lee made him go in and like add the Archie has these sort of very like almost those, those, like, the the cross hatches, yeah, exactly yeah. the cross hatches. So Patsy had Patsy had cross hatches as well. So yeah, so Marvel was very much known for you know knocking off other people's books. So it makes sense that when. So it's a very famous story that Lee talks about in the Origin of Marvel Comics that we do in the show, which is the Jack Lee, which, excuse me, was it Martin Goodman, uh, Stan's uh, cousin-in-law and the boss, the owner of the company, went golfing with the head of DC Comics who talked about how great their superhero books were doing again after superheroes after the war kind of completely fell out of favor. But then uh, the so-called Silver Age started right with the new with the Barry Allen Flash and the Hal Jordan Green Lantern and all that stuff, and then they did then they did Justice League of America, and so Leibowitz told Stan, "Time to do more superhero books." And at that point, the Kirby and Stanley stories totally diverge because they tell totally different stories, which we get into in the fourth. Which we get into to a certain degree in the fourth, and we didn't. Kirby in in the eighties told the story about walking into Marvel one day and having all the audio the all, the furniture being taken out and Stan sort of sitting there sobbing in console it and Kirby shows up and says I'm going to do this book called the Fantastic Four. That story is is dubious in a number of different levels, um, not the least of which is that apparently like by that point Marvel was basically Stan and the production people and a, and a secretary. So taking the furniture of Marvel in 1959 would have taken about 20 minutes. So it's kind of like, so if Kirby like showed up, like it is this amazingly lucky window when he showed up just before all the furniture was taken off. But I think that Kirby was sort of seeing how Stan liked to sort of tell stories and embellish the truth. And, and he was sort of like, well, I'm, I'm going to start telling stories. You know, apparently that's the only way to get people to believe you, you know, this whole being honest stuff is for the birds, you know, you can blame them at that point, you know. And isn't it kind of just like our society anyway, um, where, you know, you, you look at politics, you look at entertainment, you look at, you know, sports, we always want that one superstar to kind yeah. of bring us along, right? But it's really some of the soldiers or the, the second in command or the 1A, that's just as important but people just don't want to buy what's being sold if it's coming out of a certain vessel. Yeah. I mean, I just sort of, I just feel like we're pack animals and we're looking for the alpha. And I just think we don't like nuance and it's just easier to think, you know, you'd be shocked, I guess, like I said, in this animation book, you'd be shocked to see how many like intelligent people, like I remember like I undercover a review by John Updike of all people, like the novelist. And he talked like Walt Disney through every frame of those movies himself. And it's like, 
know what you're fucking talking about. Like, you know what I mean? Just, did, it's just stunning how people have zero interest where their culture and their entertainment comes from, really, you know, when it comes right, right down to it. How the sausage is made, they have, you know, no interest in it as long as it tastes good, you know? Yeah, it reminds me of that line from The Matrix where, you know, he's made a deal with the, uh, the robots, the machines, and he's like, I know the steak isn't real, <laughs> but I'm going to enjoy eating it. I've butchered the right. line, but that's basically it. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's, such a, it's such a meta world in life that we've been living for a while, and now it's completely uh, gone high octane away. I also know that, you know, and journalists have to face this as well. I mean, for what we have of journalism now, which is changing all the time, and right. journalists have to fight for their lives at this point, um, real journalism, but at, literally. Um, but um, this, in telling a big story, you've got to focus on the one person. You've got to give that that narrative if you really want the story to get across, because it's just part of human nature. You know, we can't, we, we, we want that hero's journey in some way um, and we're looking for it. And, um, and it's great right now that we're challenging that. And we're talking about that with um, a lot of new TV stuff coming out and just, just how we can follow different characters and um, it's happening at comics. But, um, but at that time, you know, with this kind of story and this kind of success story, it's also that Stan became a celebrity and we live in, and Stan is really a part of that, you know, and I think um, Abraham Reisman gets into it in his book, True Believer, you know, he, it's celebrity culture, you know, mm -hmm. um, we're so happy this is doing so well, but we're also really proud that these actors are wonderful and they have their followings, but, you know, this wasn't about, okay, great, let's go get, you know, who, you know, who's the most famous person, Fred, that you'd like to write an audio podcast for? You mean as a subject or as an actor? No, as an actor. I don't know anyone. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. We weren't like, okay, now we can put Tom Hanks and, you know, um, and, you know, like to talk about some of the suits, they're, they're kind of looking at that, you know, that kind of model, you know, like right. let's get an idea right. and then let's, you know, and uh, I think there was a New York Times article about it recently. And <laughs> I actually love hearing celebrities talk about because they're like, this pandemic happened, but you know, um, these audio dramas, I get to do them for my house. And then like, it's like amazing. Like, I don't even, you know, like they're just like so excited, you know. Um, but you know, it, this is an art form and it's exciting to see people play with this much. And I think I've talked about it a bit before in other places, but, um, indie theater and, um, drama also plays extremely well in the audio sphere because we didn't have much of a budget to begin with. So we had to imagine big and it was like a black box. We had to be imaginative and that plays extremely well on audio. I think it was literally a black box. We were fair. literally <laughs> a black box. Yes. <laughs> It was, it was, it was, the theater was called The Brick and it had like brick walls. So I guess it was a red box. <laughs> specific about it, but you know. It's one of my favorite black boxes, I have to say. It's, it's yeah, it's, it was, it's clearly an old garage. Yeah, I love right. black box theaters, yeah. So considering um, the Marvel method, right? And the great stuff that's come out of it, but also I guess on the creative end when it comes to, um, you know, giving proper credit to the creators, how has that impacted how you guys go about, you know, doing your, your craft? Well, I mean, the Marvel method is not used and I, and I, that much these days, like Mark Wade and Dan Slaughter are the only guys I know that still do it. Um, I, I hope no one I work for is listening to this podcast because if I'm doing the Marvel method, you know, I have checked out of the project. <laughs> like I have like, 
But again, you know, and I, I feel like I can't stress this enough, what modern creators do and have done, even really since the mid 60s, called the Marvel method is completely different than what Stan did. What Stan did is he called you up and said, uh, let's have him go fight God or this, let's have this issue's villain be the kingpin or whatever it is. Not always, sometimes there'd be stereo conferences. Sometimes they, you know, he'd be driving back and forth between Long Island and New York with an artist. Particularly, I remember John Arita Sr. was somebody who used to do this with a, a lot. But in other words, what Stan was doing was not, at least in that phase of the project, not really what anybody would really consider writing. You know, that there'd be mm -hmm. more of his giving editorial direction. So, um, I mean, Marvel's a very editorially driven, you know, uh, company like when I was working there you would people they would call you up and they say we want Deadpool to fight Punisher and you'd be like okay it's not like I'd be like I got a great idea Deadpool should fight Punisher like no no no, no. that was not our job it was their job to come and tell us you know uh, that that sort of stuff so just from a pure Marvel standpoint um, also when I was at Marvel and I'm pretty sure this is still the case editors weren't allowed to write like that was a ban so they, they were, they clearly, you know, this whole Stan Lee situation caused enough problems. They changed company policies that would never happen again. Right. <laughs> you know, so. Do you Interesting. Think the, not using the Marvel method also had to do with, at the time that uh, like Kirby and Ditko were talking about um, not getting their fair share. Right. And, you know, let's bring it down to an even sort of more basic level, right? As we keep talking about credit, what we're also not talking about is money because Stan was pocketing the page rate for writing when really it was the artist that was largely Wally Wood's problem when he was doing Daredevil and why he quit Daredevil so quickly was because he realized he was doing 80% of the writing and getting 0% of the page rate for writing. Right. And a lot of artists have wised up and they're like, if you're going to make me so that's why most Marvel style plots, so-called Marvel style plots are five, six, seven pages long. I mean, the only couple plots we've found of stands are two pages long, which is barely, you know, a suggestion. You know, so, I mean, I worked directly with Dan and on Amazing Spider-Man, I dialogued a couple of his plots. His plots are five, six, seven, eight pages long. Like they actually tell you what to do. And I've had a lot of artists, are, frankly, are annoyed at being asked to write when they're not being paid for it, A, and B, when they have enough problems trying to figure out just what to draw, how to draw what they're being asked to draw. Um, some guys, Riley Brown, our buddy, friend of the show, uh, great artist, he loves Marvel style. Dennis Calero yeah. loves, loves Marvel style. Like I've worked with some artists who specifically request Marvel style, but I've worked with more artists who specifically refuse to do Marvel style. And some of the great little details of this, if you're interested in writing for comics, um, make, make comics like the prose is a book I use when I teach. Um, Fred and Greg Pak wrote it and they use um, a Riley Brown um, scenario and, and showing that how it got, uh, oh, it was Fred's scenario and then um, Riley Brown draws it. However, it asks you to, to figure it out first. It has some cool exercises in there, but it takes you from, from writing to publication, um, uh, you know, all of it, uh, you know, to the art and collaboration. Um, it's a wonderful book, but it does also detail these differences in style and, and script making. Um, so it's pretty cool. And and I, I can imagine that the process is a lot easier when there is a, like a relationship between the two creators, right? When it's, when, when you have an established relationship, whether you're friends or you've worked together before and you kind of get each other's sensibilities, it then makes things a little bit easier in terms of like what you want then communicated, not only as a writer, but then what is then translated as the artist. Well, and it, you know, it, 
just related directly back to Stan and Jack. Don't forget Stan was Jack's boss. Like he decided who got hired and fired. I don't, you know, I don't have the power. If I work with artists, we are equals in terms of our ability to, you know, get each other fired. You know what I mean? Like that was absolutely not the case. Uh, If an artist has a problem with something I'm doing, he can go to the, the editor and, you know, complain or try and work something out. Jack had no recourse. He just had to smile and take it because mm-hmm. it you know the, his his collaborator was his you know the person who decided whether he got work or not yeah and friendship yeah. sort of implies you know equality <laughs> right <laughs> you know like it's hard to be friends with somebody who is like up here in terms of status above you you know and i and i wonder if that power dynamic also then contributed to jack maybe not pushing back as hard uh, yeah, it, I think that's 100% correct. I think you've hit the nail on the head. And, and when he came back to Marvel in the 70s after going to DC and he where he created the Eternals and Machine Man and a bunch of other characters, he insisted on being his own editor. He wouldn't come back unless he got to write, draw, and got left alone. So he we wised up <laughs> in his next go-round of Marvel. Stan was gone by then, so it wasn't necessarily a problem. But right. But he, he knew where the, where the power lay. Where he was excited, though, was that Stan was so liberal in the sense of like, yeah, you want to create stuff? Like, let's talk about, like, you want to bring me, bring me your ideas. And yeah, but that bit him on the ass. That bit him on the ass. But, but, but Jack was excited by somebody who would listen to things that maybe other people thought, oh, well, that's a little too out there or, you know, and so he, I think got excited by having that ear, but ultimately, um, you know, we see this happen a lot in, um, um, in every collaboration where Mm -hmm. it's in the beginning, they have a little bit more of a fraught relationship because he actually meets um, Stan when he's younger, kind of as an assistant and kind of forms this thought, uh, you know, this judgment of him, um, which I think Stan might've always felt or we insinuate that in the, in the play. But, you know, um, in a lot of collaborations you start out and you, you know, you're working together and it isn't until at some point you realize I'm doing most of the work or we don't see it the same way, even though we see yes. the story the same way, but we don't see our deliberate. And it's, it's, it's messy to try to untangle if you didn't know in the beginning, or at least say, Hey, if you end up co-writing the story with me, we're going to talk about that or have an open door. It's very hard to bring up. Um, very hard. And this is kind of this whole play relationship um, was the first time we wrote together, but it was odd in that I was just giving thoughts on the play. Like I really just thought I'll keep reading drafts and talking about it. It was Fred that like slapped my name on it. So that never <laughs> happens. And so congratulations. Thank you, honey. I'm here for you, sweetie. <laughs> it was nothing. And, and, you know, cause I, I've done collaborations as well too. And even though you're laser focused on where you want it to go, it might be a difference of style, right? And that sometimes can be the biggest, uh, you know, obstacle in the road. So then when you were working on this together, were there any kind of moments where it was like, well, I think we should go this way. And then how, how do you then is it a, a, a coin flip? Is it a, you know, let's get back to this in two weeks kind of thing? How do you then solve your disagreements, if you had any? Mud wrestling. No. Um, <laughs> I wish. No, uh, then I'd lose every oh. single time. But, uh, yeah, you would. Uh, well, well, so I had already written a draft like 12 years or something before we picked it up again. So, Initially, Crystal was sort of working with 10-year-old Fred, and modern Fred didn't give a shit what 10-year-old Fred 
10 years older. I said, I didn't write the play when I was 10 years old. I meant, I meant in the past, in the past. It's like happy river. 10 years younger, I should say. Like, I didn't give a shit what that guy thought. So she could do whatever she wanted to her, to, to the, uh, to that word. So that, that helped because you were collaborating with essentially a a person who no longer existed. So (laughs) always reduces arguments. Although we're co writing something together now, and you're doing the first. Well, yeah, and we fight constantly. <laughs> well, you know, what we, what was, what's great about us, we usually see the start, you know, we break story together, and, and uh, um, it's fun. You know, I, I always feel like, you know, when we talk about what a writer's room does, I think it's so terrific. But, you know, um, on a smaller way, that's what clubbers really are doing. They're doing that for each other, maybe in a two person team or three, maybe one. Um, that gets a little nutty because you're, you know, by yourself, bouncing things off by yourself. Mm-hmm. But um, in the, you know, uh, what's awesome is that we have different takes on the scene. And when I, when Fred wants to kind of race through something, I'm kind of like, but what are the beats and how do we get right. there? And then when right. I'm like, oh man, but I can't wait to get to this twist. Fred's also like that. Or, or it's if I'm, I'm spending too much time um, and it's not moving things forward, Fred's really great about that. So we kind of complement each other in that way. Um, and, uh, and a lot of our arguments actually ended up in the play, uh, the Roz and Jack have a few moments and, um, I had this monologue. I was just really excited about, <clears throat> um, uh, Kareem Fahmy is a director I'm working with right now in another play thing. And he, you know, and this is the thing I overwrite a bit <clears throat> and each draft I do, it's just my thing. And so I get a lot of, so, but this original monologue to be fair to Fred was, uh, which is Roz's in, uh, the last episode, um, is really beautiful. Uh, it was originally like, I don't know, like two minutes long. It was like a whole page. And it was and, the whole and Fred, show. And Fred was like, I'm cutting it out. And I was like, if you no, cut it yeah, out, this relationship great. is over. And I was just like, <laughs> and we just were fighting and they're like, oh, they're fighting. Oh, it's like this. Oh, let's put this dialogue in the play. So then we just, uh, it, it helped us edit the monologue, but also give over to the scene. And it's one of the best scenes in there. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, it was interesting when we batted back and forth the Stan and Kirby um, scene that you'll see because. I think sometimes we flip. Sometimes I was Kirby-ish and sometimes you were Stanley. But you really, um, Fred has always had this something about how Stan, I mean, your, your dialogue is always great. Hey. And for Kirby, it's great. But there's, you really <laughs> crystallize Stan's philosophy in ways that are surprising that you'll hear in the fourth episode, but totally ring true. I mean, the most important, I think, quality for any writer to have is empathy. Mm-hmm. You know, being able to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And I, so that's why I just think that, you know, I think a lot of people, when they hear it's a Kirby play, they see it and they're like, oh, you treated Stan really nicely. Like, they just assume. Like, I've met some, like, Kirby fans who just want to dig up Stan's corpse and beat it up with sticks. You know, like, and I'm just like, I'm not I'm not about that. Like, I'm not interested in doing that. You know what I mean? Because one thing, if Stan is that bad, then it sort of reduces, to me, you know, Kirby's agency. And, right. you know, how, how he put himself in his own position. So, yeah. And I'm really and interested in, in unpacking, um, and we're still having these conversations. Like, one... One listener um, wrote uh, somewhere on social media, this is so great. Uh, and Fred had just written um, an article for 13th Dimension. Um, uh, it was actually a review of Abe, Abe's book, Abraham Rison's book, uh, True Believer, and, and talking about how he came to kind of realize Stan wasn't exactly who he said he was in terms of um, credit creation. Um, but uh, someone posted on social media, like, this is so fascinating. I agree. I'm not going to tell my daughter yet, <laughs> mm. you know, and my mom actually took a little bit. Um, I think she, she gets it now, but you know, Stan had such a public persona. Um, and one of the most complex things about the truth is you can hold two things in your, in your hands at the same time. And so Stan yeah. gave you something and he made you feel like he was a part of your life. 
but it was the more I uh, came at understanding the story through this play really and through Fred and also Fred deals with the through line very thoroughly as well in comic book history of comics with Ryan Dunlaby who drew that artwork. Um, you know, it, it, there's this real dawning that, you know, it, it's just very hard when someone's like, I love the mutants because I feel like, you know, um, you know, uh, that I don't belong, and um, and I and and he wrote these diverse characters, and I feel like this, and you know, and so much of this didn't come from him. It's that's difficult because you you know they don't really want to hear that story. Like they just want to be like, no, Stan, like they because they just heard his voice talking to them, and they associate him with a time in their life when they were a teenager, and this got them, these X Men storylines, you know, got them through it. So, and and when you think about it. Um... Stan was in all the cartoons, right? So you're talking about fans of the Marvel Universe or comic books or entertainment as a whole, which would have, you know, had Stan ringing in their ears when they were five or six years old. And then you go, you know, four or five decades later, it's kind of hard to kind of separate what you grew up believing as a true believer versus reality, right? right. Like they always say, don't meet your heroes. And I've been lucky enough that, you know, that that hasn't rung true. A lot of the people that I've met have been actually been quite nice. And it's not always the case, though, right? Well, Frank, it, you, you know. ride the elevator with Stan Lee. I did. That was the closest I came to me. <laughs> yeah, you're totally right. I mean, and also it comes to down, you know, don't forget, I, you know, I think, again, I think Disney was largely Lee's role model on this because Disney hosted the Wild World of Disney on ABC for decades. And so, right. you know, he, it's sort of very similar where, Disney was a producer, you know, he'd like approve films and stuff, but he wasn't writing or directing or voice acting or drawing or character design or anything else. Uh, but yeah, I, there, there becomes sort of this knee jerk. I think also it's probably a product of the last five, six years where people get very defensive. They all think that, you know, everything's being, you know, torn down and all of our, you know, something it's an old guy, we, you know, what are you doing? Leave him alone. And I think there's a lot of knee-jerk reaction against that. But I think in this particular instance, um, it's a little more warranted. I mean, again, people like, because we did the play and stuff is I'm sort of known as being like a pro Jack guy. And I, I find it a little frustrating because I, I feel like people just don't want to believe that you can be a pro truth guy. You know, I, mean, I just want to know what happened. Like I don't mm -hmm. actually- It's not judgmental. Yeah, I mean, the lack of evidence like I said, I don't believe in Kirby's story of walking into Marvel when they're taking the furniture out. The lack of evidence doesn't support either side, but there's this kind of knee jerk, like, you know, it, it, it's the desire to, it, it's, you've heard the story so many times that becomes its own evidence. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the fact that it's, the legend is, it's like, you know, the George Washington cut down the cherry tree story that came out like years after he died like it was in one of the right. first biographies about George Washington but still you know it's just the kind of thing people have always heard so they always assume it's going to be true you know mm -hmm. and it and it fits a narrative right? right and and sometimes you know we go with the story as opposed to reality right yeah yeah interesting well I've had a great time chatting uh before we go two questions. What can we look forward to? I know you've mentioned it a little bit, but what can we look forward uh, either as a, as a collaboration between the two of you or separately from either of you coming up? Well, um, we are uh, we have a comic book called Eat Fighter, which is on Webtoon that we've um, collected. Web comic. Yeah, a webcomic. 
Um, we're in a new collection of Adventure Time, so um, which is pretty great. The one that focuses on Princess Bubblegum. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that for just boom. came out for Boom. <laughs> and uh, I am, uh, I have a, 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 we're very excited about Wednesday, March 3rd. Um, uh, I have a reading at night, but also the fourth episode of Kirby um, Drops, which we're really, really excited about. And also that leads nicely to Fred and what he's working on. That's right. I'm with Ryan Dudley. I'm doing the comic book history of animation from IDW, and the fourth episode or issue drops on March third. So you can just have a Fred and Crystal yep. potpourri on March third. <laughs> listen to the podcast, read the comic, watch the reading. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. Yes, uh, the play is at uh, it's called Playwright Center, uh, Central Seven o'clock Central Time, eight p.m. Eastern. You can work out Pacific. Um, it's a play called Pulp Verte. Um, yeah, that's uh, and uh, you can also check out online. There's a lot about Mary Max the musical which is um, uh, Project Bobby Cronin, the composer of King Kirby and I uh, work on. And I guess I should point out that I'm also doing the zombie zombie superhero, Steve, is a lucrative side project uh, 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 effort of mine. Uh, and I'm doing the dynamite zombie crossover, die, exclamation point, nomite. We just concluded <laughs> our first season. Uh, the second season, which is called Dynamite Lives, exclamation points. There's two exclamation points, the title. Excellent. Very daring. Uh, that's coming out of want to say in June. Okay, perfect. Excellent. And uh, social media handles, anywhere that they can find you for any uh, updates? Well, Crystal is the social media manager of King Kirby. So it's King Kirby oh, yeah. Play on Twitter and, and Instagram. I should add, you can listen to King Kirby on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, etc. You can also stream it directly on the Broadway Podcast Network website. I am Fred Van Linty, and that's my handle on every, literally everything. And Crystal Skillman as well. Um, and also do check out um, uh, King Kirby Play Insta and Twitter or brought by Podcast Network. We have a beautiful new trailer, uh, yes. a comic book trailer that dropped today. Quite awesome. Um, so we're really excited about it. Video. So, video, trailer. yes. All right, excellent. Well, Crystal, Fred, I want to thank you for joining us here. I had a great time chatting about King Kirby and also all things comics and Stan and Jack. Uh, best of luck for the rest of uh, 2021. And I have to say, you guys own March from the sounds of it. So keep going. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Cool. Thanks, thank Steve. You. That was awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. And once again, a special thank you to Crystal Skillman and Fred Van Lenty. We look forward to your comments. So reach out to us on Facebook and at Comics Asylum on Instagram and Twitter. Mm -hmm.